Tonight on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we are knocking out part two of your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. I have consumed some coffee. I am pretty worn out fighting uh, fighting something, so energy's a little bit low. Thankfully, I'm not nasally, so we're all good there. But we got your questions, y'all. We're going to get through them here. Definitely big thanks to you for more great stuff coming in. Some new questionnaires as well, which I really love. Also want to say thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA for supporting this little endeavor of ours, this little podcast. So, hey, quick little meaningless mention. Just took a look, and I think by the end of the month here, how's this? By the mid to end of November, I think we're going to cross 2 million downloads for the year, which is a number we've never really come close to before. So just another thank you to you and the serious consumption of all the silly podcasts that we put up here. And by we, I guess I mean me. So, all right, thanks for that. Let's get rolling with your questions Starting with, where do we go? Ben Cohen says, with the condensed offseason due to COVID, is there more pressure on teams to have a solid season finale to help kickstart their 2021 campaigns? I'm sure there's still a great deal of silliness left in the offseason, but do you see anything results-wise to truly affect seat movement for 2021 based on how they perform at the season finale? Great question, Ben. We'll just throw this out. Briefly, uh, we normally end the season of late uh, towards the end of September. What, last year, I think it was September 20th or so. So we are indeed going about a month longer this year because of COVID, but there's still going to be almost five months between the end of the season and the start of the season, four and a half, five months. So a decent amount of time there. I am coincidentally working on a story, a little analysis, dumb things that came to mind story for Friday here on Racer. Very likely to go along the lines of who needs what to have happen at St. Petersburg exactly on your line of thinking. So started that a day or two ago. Going to try and finish that tonight. And yeah, there are some. Uh, I know that there are some where we might put them in mission critical uh, categories and some others that, boy, it sure would be nice if they had a really strong run at St. Pete, the one who jumps out with the most to gain and or lose, which again, I'll be leading off with that in the written piece. That'd be Oliver Askew. We know that he has been cleared to drive. Thankful he's been cleared to drive. He's got some pretty decent possibilities in front of him for next year, but I think that's very much based upon how well he performs this weekend. Anytime you have someone who comes out of a car for medical reasons, especially when it is involving the brain and concussion and such, other team owners who haven't been fully versed on what's gone down, probably going to want to see that, all right, nothing to worry about, all's clear. He's obviously back in the car, but now we're seeing him running top 10, top 8, something like that. If Oliver can have a very good to excellent St. Pete. I think that opens up some real opportunities for him. After that, I'd say Alex Pillow really stands out as someone who, boy, other than that podium, which is not a bad thing, of course, but other than that podium at the first Road America round, 
It's been a lot of potential for him, but not a lot of really solid finishes. I believe that a solid finish could go a long way to making the team remove any question as to whether they want him back. I'd also say his teammate, Santino Ferrucci. I mean, granted, he is sitting there, what, uh, 12th in the standings, could certainly move up higher to the top 10 if things go well at St. Pete. He's had some very good runs this year. Not many, I'd say, great, other than probably the Indy 500, that little race you might have heard of. But Santino, someone who I think with a solid, strong performance, clean performance at St. Pete, I think it makes it easier for Dale Coyne and company to take up his option and bring him back for next year. Dale, as much as we love him, Dale always has a wandering eye. And it's just who he is. So even though he might have amazing driver or drivers in his cars, once we get to the off season, man, his normal routine for a really long time is to look around and see who's out there. Not necessarily within our paddock either. So just keep in mind that Dale's a guy who loves new and fresh talent and If St. Petersburg is a disaster for one or more of his drivers, could that pique his curiosity even more to look elsewhere? Uh, History might suggest that it would. Let's go to Hookay. Asks, how should the reduced race length at St. Pete this weekend affect the expected pit windows, and should it lead to more strategery or a straightforward race, barring cautions? So, open admission here. Okay, I don't remember the exact lap count for last year's race, which is why I am hurriedly chasing that information down so that I can answer this with more than just stupid stuff. Uh, We're doing 100 laps this Sunday last year. Okay, Uh, it was 110. Yeah, I I like the possibility of this not becoming much of a fuel-saving race. It's never been a giant fuel-saving race that I can recall, but this should, in theory, open things up a little bit more for drivers going more flat out and not having uh, being pinned into super tight uh, pit windows. So, yeah, uh, I like it, and I am hoping that this is a recognition coming off of the first IMS round. Granted, I believe this was set long before then, but I think this might be part of the thing we're hoping for getting the race length set to something that promotes better racing, more creative strategery, and therefore improve the passing and fun and drama. Uh, Rem Lap Double Zero asks, why no doubleheader for St. Petersburg? Well, we've never had a doubleheader there. And knowing that their goal was to get to 14 races and that St. Petersburg, during the first one or two or three, maybe, calendar updates and adjustments, St. Pete still was a, it was gone altogether, or a TBA. And I think the way they structured things, Remlap, double zero, was a pretty straightforward, okay, we're going to try and get to 14 races. We're going to have to spin some of the ones early, mid, you name it, into double headers but we're just going to use the existing races 
to get us to 13, and provided we can get St. Petersburg back, well, that would be the standard single round to close the season. I'm guessing permit-wise, it's probably also something that, since it was in place and ready to go right when COVID hit, I'm guessing that there's probably some element of permit carryover. So I think somewhere in that area you have your answer. I also think there'd be a lot of IndyCar teams and drivers that would revolt if the season finale was indeed a doubleheader on a street course where cars get worn out and drivers get worn out. Uh, JJ Gertler, how you doing, JJ? Going into the last race of the season, uh, we, the public, don't know about some impending movements and available seats, but are the deals all basically done by now? Or are there people whose future careers depend on how they do on uh, this one? And so I know we touched on that a little bit with Ben, in his opening question, but I think the the careers part is what stood out to me here. It's one thing for a team to say, yeah, we're going to hold on to you if you have a good race, or some doors are going to open if you have a good race. It's another to say, hmm, do you think their careers might get turned off if things don't go well in St. Pete? And admittedly, JJ, I am not seeing anyone who is in that real place right now i know that i just spent a half hour on the phone with our pal robin miller who said he's worried about simon pagino and if he doesn't turn things around could he get pitched out at the end of the season well again i don't know if saint petersburg would drastically change anything but we do have a uh a thing here where certainly um I, Robin's intuition is sometimes good, sometimes not. So I can't tell you if that's accurate or not, but I do know that, uh, I mean, I hope Simon doesn't lose anything career-wise because I'm not sure that there's a readily available seat that jumps out for him to take. I know that there are some seats that are open. I'm just not aware that those are seats that those teams would say, aha, come on in after you, Monsieur Pagano, it's all yours. So... I don't think we're looking at anybody who could be a former IndyCar driver if they have a bad St. Pete, Mr. Gertler. Let's go to Northern Penguin 01. Hey, Marshall, after watching Petit Le Mans and Felipe Nazar and Alexander Rossi go at it, I wondered what happened to Nazar running with Carlin this year. Was it a funding issue? And do you think we might see him run for Carlin in races next season? Hopefully his IndyCar career goes farther than just the iRacing series. I do not think... Dear Northern Penguin 01 from the good old Reddit, I do not think we're going to see Felipe back. Uh, I haven't spoken with him about it, so I'm, this is not coming from a place where I know the answer and I'm just being vague. Uh, it was a perfect time and place opportunity for the Carlin team to start the year. They intended, wanted to run two cars, having Felipe there to do a race or two, hopefully build some interest, either find some money for him to continue, find some other drivers with funding that wanted to come in and take over the car. There was a real desire to return to two cars full-time, and so Felipe was honestly a really good decision, kind of a, a salesman for that quality seat and uh, what could be done inside of it. Uh, I am aware that the team was footing the bill and was planning to, you know, call it a marketing expense 
to put Felipe in the car for one or two opening races with Corolla hitting and they, the team deciding, Hey, we're going to be one, uh, full time. I think that closed the door there. And also from a contract standpoint, uh, I don't believe action express racing is IMSA team is going to let him go anywhere. So yeah. Um, I would love to see it and I'd hate for Felipe to never become an IndyCar driver. The timing right now though, I don't know if it's as good as it was when uh, he did some tests or did that testing with our pals at Carlin. Uh, Duncan Idaho 11. How's Dalton Kellett looking for 2021? If he's out of a ride, then could he take on another role at Foyt? I do not know. Haven't had the time, frankly, to reach out to Dalton and ask. I know in the Silly Season update, I did not mention him because I have not heard his name. Now, I'm not saying that because I haven't heard his name associated with Foyt for next year, that that means anything. just means I haven't heard anything. Uh, but there could be indeed lots of things. Who knows? I don't know. I know that Dalton's in that uncomfortable place. I would assume would be uncomfortable where he has the ability to bring a budget. That budget is coveted. I haven't heard anyone mention Dalton and his ability to be a front running top caliber driver of race cars as being something that is attractive or interesting. So like the kid really do. I just don't know if his funding is something that whether it's Foyt or another team would look at and say, got to do it. Got to have Dalton here. Let's go racing in 2021. And just a quick sidebar, Duncan, I've worked with a couple of drivers who fit that exact category, whose funding is the first thing that teams look at. Now, they might have won some races in the junior categories, maybe even Indy Lights, but not a reputation for being a future champion, even race winner. And therefore, the regard in which such drivers are viewed often comes down to the, well, we need money. Racing's expensive. Uh, Things are really tight right now. Um, Maybe we can do something together, but it's more out of preservation for the team and keeping folks employed and keeping the lights on than anything really heavily attached, Duncan, to the art of four-wheeled competition. So, Hopefully, I'll get to speak with Dalton, get a better idea of what may or may not be on his horizon for next year. Let's see. MP, my favorite rookie this year, seems to be the least talked about rookie lately, says Ryan Terpstra. Do you think things look okay for Alex Pelot to come back next year? Great, great question here, Ryan. I know that there was concern about a month ago that no one was talking about a thing and that was worrisome. And when I spoke with the young Spaniard, I don't know, seven days ago, 10 days ago, uh, he didn't give me any finer details, but he did mention that, Hey, uh, we are talking now. There are conversations about continuing next year, not saying it's going to happen, but the conversations are happening. 
And when I spoke with Dale on Monday, Dale Coyne, he said the same thing. Also, super high marks for Alex. So they love the kid. It sounds like they'll want to work together. But here we come back to the point that is the point seemingly with almost every question or answer. Money uh, provided Mr. Go, Kazumichi Go, who has been the primary bankroller of such things for young Alex, uh, provided the money can be put together, I would absolutely believe Alex Pillow will be back. Uh, Darren Dubois, man, I just I got to make more calls. Charlie Kimball status for next season. Don't know. Uh, spoke with Charlie, I think, for my first or second silly season update. Didn't ring him for the third one uh, because you know he just mentioned a desire to return to Foyt. And there you go. So I do not know of anything being done at Foyt. It's not like I would necessarily normally know, but in what I did write about there being a uh, Pietro Fittipaldi, Fittipaldi, boy, I can't even pronounce his name, which is, I don't know why, Pietro Fittipaldi. (laughs) It's my unpolished turd of a show, y'all. I keep in all the errors. Pietro Fittipaldi is indeed uh, in the frame for something next year. Have heard that Tony Canon could be part of that. We would assume that would be Tony on the ovals again, but we know Tony's also in the frame to do the ovals with Jimmy Johnson at Chip Ganassi. So Darren just talking about possibilities. Charlie's known to have a really good and loyal sponsor. Could that be something that has him either going to another team, maybe back to Carlin if the funding is strong enough, or if it's not and there are no other Full-time opportunities, could he do the ovals and who knows, maybe a few other races uh, and stay at Foyt in the number four car? Uh, There's that. So that's just all assumption on my end. I've heard nothing really negative about Charlie uh, team-wise, so we'll definitely, though, look to find out more. Tom Firth says, How close are we to a Scott McLaughlin deal being announced? His reaction after Bathurst seemed to suggest... He's pretty confident of a full season next year in IndyCar. Um, let's see. Stephen Kilsdonk, another one here. Hi, Marshall. Best wishes to you and Chabrell. Thank you, Stephen. How foolish are all of us for not recognizing Scott McLaughlin was coming to IndyCar 18 months ago? It should have been obvious when IndyCar announced that Red Bull had designed a, quote, jandal for the cars, that being the uh, aero screen, uh, making Scotty feel at home. And in doing so, Red Bull helps to improve Triple H chances for success back in Australia. Wow, that's a deep cut there, Stephen, with all kinds of Australian supercars references that probably a lot of IndyCar fans don't get, and eh, I won't explain all of it. So here's just a couple of items that might be fun or interesting. For those of you who love the truthiness or subterfuge and distraction stuff. So as I've been saying for a while, others have been saying for a while, we expect Scott to be a full-time Penske driver next year. We've been saying fourth car, but if Robin Miller's theory is correct, who knows what the actual car count will be. But regardless, been saying for a little while now, we expect Scotty to be full-time in IndyCar. Through the Bathurst 1000 event last weekend, lots of things that I read, stories written, some quotes from him about, you know, uh, I've all the things I set out to achieve, I've achieved all the championships, the Bathurst 1000 win and this and that. And, you know, all the goals that I had, uh, they've been satisfied. So if by chance this is my last race 
then I would be leaving satisfied, but I'm not saying I'm leaving. Read a story Sunday, maybe Monday, uh, from down under. So I forget what day it would be there or here when he said it, but what was expressed in general terms was a pretty decent rebuke of coming to America. I was paraphrasing something along the lines of I'm planning to be back here in the Australian supercars next year until Roger Penske tells me otherwise. And it was, yeah, it was pretty serious push in the opposite direction. And so I think that's what I closed uh, my last silly season piece with was, huh? So he's, mm, he, he's pushing back on the notion a bit. Don't be so sure that he's coming over full time. I think I also mentioned to y'all that although I had a very well-placed piece of news that I mentioned that he was staying after St. Petersburg. And I think wrote that somewhere in my interview with Scott last week on his own, just kind of unprompted mention. Oh, by the way, I am going home after the, after St. Pete. So, Ooh, even more questions. Maybe he's really not coming here. Um, I won't mention what it is because it wouldn't be right, but I can tell you this. There, after reading all these things, after him saying he's going home, and then after reading the, hey, I, I'm not planning to be anywhere other than here next year, uh, and I don't haven't been told I'm going to be anywhere else other than here, so till they tell me I'm doing something else, this is where I expect to be. I'll just say that I've since heard something which made me believe that there's some good subterfuge going on right there, and distracting folks with some shiny objects about what's actually happening for him. So uh, just a little piece of information that came through that had me say, oh, no, he's going to be here full-time next year, no question. So I don't know if I'll be able to mention the what the thing is <laughs> that has me fully confident he's going to be here, but um, Team Penske is very – they're the most – one of the two most controlling teams in IndyCar in terms of news and everything. And they do a lot to shape information, what is said and when, what isn't said, the exact perfect timing according to them. And assuming that all of that is indeed what's taking place here, there's just a really good effort to make as much confusion as possible and lack of clarity as for whether he would be an IndyCar or not next year. Final thing to mention here to you guys, and this is, you know, it's more and more of a thing. It's sometimes not all the sponsors have been notified that a change is happening. Sometimes there are negotiations going on with sponsors where it might be for one thing, but maybe it needs to shift to something different. And as a result, you might ask a driver to, hey, if this comes up, play it down. Uh, do your best to give the impression there's no change. You're not leaving our team for another. You're not leaving this series for that. Whatever it is, you'll often find out that there are some commercial considerations in mind here that make playing down change and playing up stability Everything's rock solid. Don't read, don't look at the shiny objects over here that are distracting you. Everything's good and normal. And when we get to a place where every single thing is buttoned up, 
and all sponsors are alerted, everyone's on board and everything's great, then we will unveil the thing that has been rumored for a really long time. So there you go. Uh, Michael Steenblick. Hey, buddy. He says, Marshall, I'm resubmitting my question from last week, like you asked. Um, also says, really nice things, hoping things are well for my wife and I. says, with less ovals in 2021, three, but really two as far as tracks, meaning the uh, double header we're going to have at Worldwide Technology Raceway. Um, do you think this will help uh, certain drivers in the championship over others or maybe hurt a particular driver? What comes to mind, Michael, is there are a couple of IndyCar drivers who, because they either have zero experience for the most part um, on ovals or just even if they do, they just have yet to really find their, uh, their aptitude. There are a couple who might not be complaining. Um about this change and wait a minute i think i said double header at worldwide technology I, texas i think is what i meant i don't know what i mean michael but you know this you accept this that i'm an idiot so thank you um i think that there are some drivers a couple of drivers who don't exactly smile when they see that they're going to an oval who are going to be very happy here um as for those who really excel on ovals but don't have a ton more to uh, ton more to offer when they are away from the ovals, eh, I mean there aren't many of those as well, right? If we're looking at real serious impacts, and boy, throw them on an oval and watch out. <laughs> not trying to be mean here but there are some drivers who yeah they can be pretty good on ovals they might not always be great on road and street courses but their overall average for the year is crap so maybe there's not a whole lot there to really worry about um if we're talking full timers i mean we know charlie kimball's oval stuff tends to be a bit stronger uh, across all of his finishes elsewhere during a season i Connor Daly, we know, has really shined uh, with Carlin on the ovals. So I would think he's someone who, I mean, granted, it's not as if he isn't good on the road and street courses as well, but this is an area where he has stood out this year. So maybe he's a guy who wishes there were some more to be able to do that. Jack Harvey's a guy who I think if there was the Indy 500 and only the Indy 500, he'd be pretty happy. Uh, Santino, we certainly know, is just crazy rock star super fast always in the hunt guy on ovals so i'm sure he would love to have some more but after that you know takuma obviously is good on ovals for sure uh he's also won races more than one recently on uh, road courses so i'm maybe not seeing a huge thing here michael of ah the lack of ovals is really going to hurt some uh, significantly or reward some significantly. I might be wrong though. So don't be afraid to send me a tweet or a whatever saying, well, idiot, you forgot about this. Uh, let's see. Let's go to DJ Jordan. feels like it's been a little while DJ. Uh, why does there seem to be a revolving door for the IndyCar and IMS communications department 
Has it always been like that? And, and am I just now noticing it, or is there something else going on behind the scenes? Well, when we had Roger Penske purchase uh, things, we definitely were not too surprised that there was going to be a change. Change made bringing in Davey, good old TV's Dave first. Um, but in general, yeah, it feels like there's about a two to three year window where someone holds the position and then we're, I'm talking the head and then they either decide to leave or they are invited to leave, uh, permanently. I wish I knew the exact reason why, but I don't would have to say that this went on back in the Brian Barnhart president era, the Randy Bernard era, Derek Walker era. Um, we've been through a couple since the new regime is there with Jay Fry and company and such. And I don't fully understand why it is the way it is. Would say, I think we're going to, break this trend possibly knowing that Davey was really a Penske hire the guy the person that they wanted who they went and got and they aren't known Roger Bud Denker Greg Penske and so on they're not really known for kind of fly-by-night things if they're going to make a change then it's going to be something someone they have strong convictions about where this went down in a little bit of a weird way is I'm not sure that everybody who was in the communications department knew that this position was being interviewed for. And so also a little bit weird when you, as I've mentioned back when this change happened, Davey is awesome at what he does. This is also a brand new job for him in a brand new discipline. Never done anything like it before. So would I think it would be weird to be in the department and maybe the senior most person in that department to have a new boss come in who you may know and might think highly of, but also know you've spent the majority of your adult life in this profession and are pretty good at it. And now all of a sudden you've got a, boss who really is day one on the job learning this thing you've dedicated your life to that could be a little awkward so i don't know uh dj i would hope that with davy's installation this is a really nice opportunity for him to be there for five ten however many years that he wants and for really good things to happen I can tell you without citing specific examples that I have already seen Davey do some things that are very different than I've ever seen them done in that way by someone in his role. And I have to give those things a big thumbs up. So despite the lack of experience, it seems like he is uh, doing some good work. Uh, let's see where are we going next. We're going to Lynn, the IndyCar fan Marshall. One of my work buddies says that knockout qualifying and two tire compounds is a gimmick that IndyCar does. What is your take on it? 
my take is the best qualify period in any series. Uh, and I love strategy. Well, Lynn, uh, I would say I would have a really fun argument and conversation with your work buddies. Um, knockout qualifying. I love you get something that builds drama and often has surprise. And since qualifying is, I don't want to say it's an artificial thing. It's certainly a good way to set the grid, but there's more than one way of doing it. Um, why not do things in a way that builds a bit of drama, puts pressure on folks, and makes them use some strategery when they go to the red tires compared to the black tires and for how long? Um, we saw Renus VK on the IMS road course for the first round really go heavy on reds. Amazing qualifying performance, obviously, with pole, finished on the podium, and ended up hurting him a little bit the next day in terms of tire allocation to work with. Uh, hey, interesting. And was he, would he have qualified poorly or nowhere near pole? Um, had he not done, had they not done the things they did? I don't know if I'd say that. Clearly the car's fast. Clearly he was fast. Uh, so I really love the knockout stuff. We'll also mention that as someone who writes about this stuff for the series that just have pretty much straightforward qualifying, eh, it's not always the most interesting thing to present in terms of a story. It's more of a factual documentation. So-and-so went fastest, use IMSA, for example, and I know they're changing things up for next year in some cases, but so-and-so is fastest, so-and-so is second. So-and-so is third. There you go. Uh, here, you can actually talk about, hey, look at the three rounds of the uh, Firestone Fast 6 and how this played out. Who snuck through? Who surprised the hell out of people? What, last year? St. Petersburg season opener, 2019. Ben Hanley, IndyCar rookie, making his debut. Because of the timing of a red flag, he ended up getting through to the Fast 6. I mean, it's amazing. Right now, was that normal in terms of, was he really someone who should have gone through to the fast six on pure pace? No, but Hey, huh, look at what happened. So I love the fact that we quite often have some drama. We almost always have a who sucked in qualifying sidebar story to write. Well, what happened here? Why is Scott Dixon 19th at wherever or Pagano or whomever. And you also have more often than not, some pretty interesting stuff to use uh, for the rest of the qualifying rounds. As for the two tire compounds being a gimmick. Um, I don't know why that's really perceived as such. Uh, if you look at formula one, they have many compounds. If you look in sports cars in IMSA's GT Le Mans class, they have multiple tire options. Uh, what do they call them? Cold, uh, hot, and I forget the exact three-grade uh, nomenclature that they have. But they, too, can choose to work within a range of tire options. So, again, I don't, I don't know why this would be considered a gimmick. But, hey, uh, I'm not the person who thinks they're a gimmick. So that's why I don't understand it. But 
yeah hey uh this is what makes racing fun right we all see things often in a very different way or slightly different way so thanks for sending that in lynn uh ed joris lately we've been hearing about some drivers burning off the rear tires too quickly hurt in particular but others as well i assume some of this is the diff settings on non-ovals what else enters into it uh yeah i mean a couple quick things here ed i wouldn't just point to the diff by any means just more often than not there is not a lot of track time leading into either qualifying or the race therefore teams are having to take pretty significant stabs at setup balance is rarely as tack sharp as it would be in a non-covid year with three practice sessions before qualifying instead of a single 75 minute session and then going straight into qualifying and then often straight into the race or maybe a brief warm-up before it uh you've just got a lot of teams that frankly are not able to zero in and knock out a really close to perfect setup and then you remove all the testing that's been taken away i'd say just in a very general term i mean we can talk technical stuff and whether it's diff settings whether it is though just general weight distribution uh we're talking about dynamic of course not static but uh we're talking about spring rates we're talking about center pressure from an aero standpoint tire pressures and blah 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 what's heaving how much are you controlling the heave how much is that burning up tires or making tires happy uh, here's a uh maybe the most apt way to answer this that comes to mind ed this is maybe coming at it from the opposite way. How many races can we think of this year where a driver said car was on rails? <laughs> this thing, I mean, just everyone else from the moment the green flag waved, everyone else was fighting over second place. Um, that hasn't really been the narrative, right? It's usually been, oh man, I did my best, or towards the final pit stop, we finally got things rounded into a little bit of better shape, but I'm just struggling to recall too many races this year. I know Dixon was great to start at Texas. Um, You know, we've seen some serious leads built here or there, but across the 13 races this year, I'd have to suggest that the majority have been a situation where by and large, you know, maybe there's one driver who runs off and hides and wins, but it's very rare that we have heard that from a lot of the race winners and especially from those chasing the race winners. So that's probably where I'd focus things, Ed, provided we have normal ish off season testing plan in season testing plan and we can go to non-COVID schedules at the events next year, I think we're going to see less rear tire destruction. Let's see. Let's go to Raymond Wong. What will be the series' biggest priority in the offseason? Third engine supplier updated rules package for next season, especially on aero screen. Potential chassis, uh, new chassis. Our attempt to add more ovals in 2022, maybe even Roger buying one. Well, Raymond, I love everything there, and I would say probably yes to everything. Obviously, they're needing to get a third between now and this time next year, for sure. Um, Aero screen and tuning and tweaking on the car to be a little bit better on some of the ovals, for sure. 
I uh, don't think a new chassis is really going to be a big priority next year, but I'll have to ask. Um, ovals, we know that's something that they want to have more of. I don't know if there's any easy solution right there. The biggest priority, and it's not a fun one or a sexy one, but we've seen the Freedom 100 Indy Lights race taken off of the month of May schedule, right? The SVRA, Vintage Racing Group, they have been blown out of the Brickyard after, I think, seven years, eight years in a row. Their V-Rock event, the big, big vintage event they put on, that's been blown out. Uh, I'm forgetting one other that I recall that, again, is a normal, it's a staple that's been blown out from uh, the IMS calendar for next year. There's, whether it's the Speedway or the Series, you're going to see, I think, some serious cost-cutting. I don't know what kind of personnel profile we're going to have, say, January 1st. Who is there today that won't be there at the start of the new year? I keep hearing there's been a pretty serious effort to evaluate who's who, what's what, who does what, who gets paid what. Uh, is that invaluable that thing that they do for us? Is there someone that could do that instead of them? And two, you know, one person could do two jobs. Is there some fat on the bone here that doesn't need to be? Knowing that the rumored number of financial losses due to a lack of fans at the major events is said to be closer to nine figures than eight figures. I think the biggest priority, the biggest thing we're going to see, although I don't know all the ways it's going to play out, Raymond, is where can money be reduced and where can we remove waste? Where, 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 where? So treating this as a proper business and not just a place to burn cash for fun, um, I think the biggest priority is going to be what do things look like as we start the new year and how much belt tightening to get over this big financial loss this year potentially i mean who knows how long COVID's going to be here that potentially rolls into next year as well um just do not underestimate how the dollars and cents side will very very likely be the number one item that dictate that dictates a lot of things you either see happening or you see changing or things you see going away altogether Andy Merrick. Hey, Andy, how you doing, buddy? MP, what are some of the stories you'll be following and expecting updates on prior to the 2021 season start? Huh. Say the Jimmy Johnson angle jumps out. He's going to need to do a lot of testing and a lot of testing and a lot of testing. What do the rules allow? What creative things might they do to circumvent that? putting him in a older chassis or again, who knows, but, uh, or will they just stick to what the series says a rookie can do? And I hope that that will be enough. I think that's going to be a fascinating theme to follow a guy who's the best of his generation in NASCAR 
moving over late in his career, mid forties, you know, midlife and trying something he's never done before. <laughs> he's done many things. He's never raced an open wheel car. Uh, and so downforce and braking and tire conservation and fuel conservation and blah, 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 blah. Like this is a lot to learn in a super short amount of time. If you want to avoid looking like a complete newbie. So the easy thing would be for us to show up at St. Pete next year, Andy and Jimmy Johnson is P however many cars are in the field P last of those. And that just be the norm. And maybe if someone else has a bad session, a bad whatever, maybe he's in front of a car too. But the easy thing is for him to be last and not because he sucks or anything else, but uh, you've got folks who've spent their entire lives, whether they're 40 or 20, training in these open-wheel cars, know what they do. There's not a lot of mystery for them. Even any young rookies that we might have, and I don't know who they might be at this stage if we're even going to have any, but... It's going to be hard for him to not be last. So the only way to avoid to be last a lot is to get in a lot of testing and learn a lot in an on-track scenario, even simulator scenario. And what can be done there, right? There's the Dallara simulator. There's the Honda simulator. Uh, what does, you know, what does it cost to do a day there and how many of those days can you possibly buy and slash rent? I don't know, but that's the only thing that it's a thing, Andy, where knowing how tight testing has been just even pre COVID, right? Rookies just aren't getting a ton of mileage. Imagine a real rookie coming from a fricking stock car, uh, so that's going to be a theme to follow for sure. Really in depth. Granted, He'll probably have a documentary team doing all this stuff, and I don't know if he's actually going to talk to folks like me uh, to keep you all up to date or if he's going to do it on his own. He seems to like the AP to talk to them. So one way or the other, I'm hoping he will bring folks inside this journey because I think it's going to be a very, very interesting one. Assuming Scott Dixon wins a sixth championship, Andy, I think we're going to see some interesting stuff to follow from there, right? Quest for seven. Will there be any additional changes to the team during the off season? Who knows? The 10 car? Uh, there's, you know, there's one name I haven't mentioned. Uh, I, I trailed at the end of my last silly season update that there's still one thing going on that really has me curious. Um, if we were to see a certain driver named... For the 10 car, I think folks would be super surprised, but could that happen? Um, we know that they need to find some budget to fill out the 10 car. How long is that going to take? Is this going to be something where they try and announce, sign and announce a driver before that's finished um, based upon who's available or not available, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's going to be a big one to follow for sure. It sounds like... The Andretti scenario, which had the potential to be, whoa, boy, there's a lot of change going on here. Sounds like that might be settled down a bit with Ryan Hunter Ray uh, waiting his confirmation to return there. So, yeah, those are the main things that come to mind, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something else, but what else is new? 
let's see, Sierra, five, six, eight, seven. Hey, Marshall, do you think IndyCar will open up some of the boxes on engine development since we will be stuck with the 2.2 liter for another two years instead of just one year? I absolutely do not. I would go as far to say that as part of signing the new 2.4 liter engine supply contracts, that there was mutual agreement from both sides that they will indeed continue not opening up boxes and not going crazy on development to keep costs down. So if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, Sierra 5687, I'd say it would still be a super slim chance, but at least I would say there was a tiny chance. The fact that everyone is just really worried about dollars and cents, I'd say not a chance whatsoever. So F you COVID. Uh, A couple more. How many do we have here? Not too many left. Uh, Where do we want to go? Um... Tony Chef 20, you mentioned last week that there are some tracks that you didn't particularly enjoy going to. If I may ask, what were those tracks? Uh, sh- sure. What, uh, what comes to mind? Back in the IRL days, I can tell you that some of the cookie-cutter one-and-a-half-mile tracks, the Kansases, the Nashvilles, and some of those, I it just seemed really lame and that's nothing personal against them or their tracks, but there were just a number of tracks on the schedules that were like, Oh, okay. Well, there's a lot of cookie cutter one and a half miles, Texas. And I'd say Charlotte were the only two that really jumped out to me as ones that had a lot of character and seemed to put on barn burners for races. Charlotte obviously ended in tragedy and went away, but I would say just some of the other ones that were on the schedule never really jumped out to me. Uh, Dover, right? I know that that place has produced some great racing uh, cup, probably more than anything, but at least for what I recall being there however many times in the IRL, oh, yeah, that just, eh, it just didn't seem to do much. Um I guess I'm talking about a lot of my experience working in the good old IRL. Uh, Walt Disney World, I mean, I kind of enjoyed the overall experience, uh, depending on which team I was with each year, because, you know, there's plenty of stuff to go and do in and around the, the track, but the track itself just didn't do much for me. So I'd say those are mostly it. I'm trying to think of any street or road courses that I would say weren't ones that I had a lot of love for uh you know i enjoy the track but it's always just a bit of a travel uh pain in the arse and that's barber granted that's me coming from california uh and such but love the track but it just always for whatever reason sticks in my mind as like oh man this is gonna be a bear but you know first world problems right (laughs) i mean come on uh let's see where else should we go here uh trip hazard technical question you remember the swift chassis proposal for 2012 incorporated a fuser called the mushroom buster has indycar considered how that design or idea might be used on the next chassis putting aside intellectual property considerations the concept seemed ideal 
I can't speak for IndyCar trip because I don't know how many meetings they hold per week. Uh, maybe one of our pals there, Tino Belly, maybe if he's listening, hello, Tino, maybe he can tell us, but uh, I don't know if I would even suggest that future chassis design specifics down to the detail of should we consider using the swift mushroom buster from eight years ago i'm very confident that tino and bill pappas and all the good folks there in that department have strong memories know what they've seen what they've liked things that they might want to carry forward uh, with the next car in working with what we assume will be Delara, yada, yada, yada. Do I think that here <laughs> in October of 2020, they're actually saying, you know, should we mushroom bust with our next chassis? I think that would be a pretty, pretty big overreach in terms of where they might be at. Uh, let's see. John Wojnar. How you doing, John? Seems like I haven't read one of your questions for a little while, so I apologize, my friend. Says, uh, Brother Marshall, I come asking about everyone's favorite off-season racing simulator, slot cars. If you had to assemble a slot car team from the current paddock, who would you choose and why? Who would be old enough to remember playing them as a kid? Who would you have to explain the concept to because they're too young? And would you have to explain to Connor Daly it's an electronic device, but he can't use it to send messages to young ladies? Uh, (laughs) So, as a kid... I loved slot cars, little electronic tracks, uh, little plastic tracks that you would set up and have the little hand control accelerator only is the only thing I ever knew where you could make the cars, little cars zoom around the track. Um, I loved them and I never really had enough of them and got into them to have all the cool stuff. But at Talbot's Toys and Cyclery, I think, in San Mateo, the town I was born in, uh, on the peninsula here in the Bay Area, uh, they had a slot car track that you could go and use. And so they sold all kinds of stuff. And what was funny, and maybe this is the same for others who are old enough to remember slot cars and uh, this being kind of a competitive thing that was once quite popular, uh, was just the kind of ego attitude reputation thing showing up whatever day it might be maybe it was a saturday and i somehow my mom would take me there or whatever however i'd get there uh you know i'm like nine years old ten years old was getting there and just seeing some of the well-established experienced slot car racers and weren't necessarily like old men but more like teenage kids young 20s i just remember it being funny john like that, oh, there's, you know, there's Bill. Oh, he's he's a badass. Look at him. And everyone looks up to him, and he knows all the best way to do things, and he's the one with all the information people are trying to get. And here's his rival, and it's just kind of funny. Just a downscaled, highly downscaled version of motor racing. So who would I choose and why? First one would be Colton Herta. That kid's the fastest learner I've seen in just about forever. And also such an extreme natural talent that if you combine those two things, he might have never have seen one in his life, might have no clue how they work. I'm confident that within five minutes, he'd be destroying whomever the established pro might be at whatever track. 
Uh, who would the second one be? And I know you got a couple of other questions in and about this. Uh, who else would I drag in there? I'm just trying to think of it for comedic sense. I think I'd bring Rossi. I I have a feeling he would know a little tiny bit about, or at least know something about slot cars. Maybe he'd never done them before. But he just strikes me as someone who would get so frustrated and so red-faced and angry if things didn't go exactly the way that he wanted that the concept of an Indy 500 winner, one of the finest IndyCar talents alive today, would be just wanting to smash the controller, smash the slot car if things weren't working out properly and just how funny that would be. Like, okay, well, you know, you can go race to a podium four consecutive podiums of late in a one-to-one scale uh, racy car, but here at a 143rd, 164th scale little electric thing going around a little plastic track, like, that's the thing that pisses you off? So I just see him going kind of Hulk smash, and that would be so hilarious. Plus, Colton would just be busting his chops and laughing his behind off as well. So uh, that's where I would go here, my friend. Where do we go for our last couple of questions to round out part two and then get ourselves ready for St. Pete? Uh, I love the question, by the way. Um, John, thank you. Uh, Hire Lee, you ask about international travel promoter who would need to pay for the transportation of their gear. With in mind, how does the uh, Toronto Race Week work? Who pays? Uh, that's a good question. I've never known for it to be anything other than teams just paying to go to Canada. So, yeah, I can just tell you from my time working for IndyCar teams, Indy Lights teams, Atlantic teams, and others going north of the good old American border, it was just what we did there was no promoter paying to go to toronto um you mentioned here that uh and if it is that simple uh a race in mexico shouldn't be that hard to organize um interesting uh let's see you also say or say how did the uh, races in australia england brazil work for cart and how did japan work for the irl uh well that was those promoters paying a lot of money I know Honda in particular with Motegi being their track. I've uh, just always known that to be a thing that Honda paid for. And there you go. Uh, hi, Rose. As our cat Rose decides to make her presence known. How you doing, sweetheart? She has been meowing. She woke us up very early this morning, meowing like mad for no reason we can really figure out. Uh, Raymond Wong. Uh, let's see. This is on season-ending races. Every Indy fan knows the worst season-ending race was Fontana 1999. What, in your opinion, uh, the best season-ending race from a championship fight and racing standpoint? Hmm. Hi, Rose. I'm glad you want to weigh in here, too, sweetheart. Uh, Best? I'd probably have to really think about that to give you the perfect answer. But since perfection is not expected or really attainable here, Raymond... I'll just say that the 2015 finale of those that happened recently, that really stood out. And it was more from a, 
Man, we never thought anyone other than good old Juan Monterrier was going to win this race uh, at Sonoma. And just a quick little sidebar. Uh, does anyone remember who won the race? Like, that's the f- funny thing. And I know it's five years ago and lots of things have happened and we've all moved on, blah, blah, blah. But does in and among the Montoya leading the championship the whole year, Dixon being third in the championship coming into the season finale, um, so on and so forth. Uh, Ray Hall, Graham Ray Hall was second and such. Um, does anybody remember who actually won the race or is it just all the points based drama, um, that went down Dixon ended up winning the race. And obviously that's the thing that helped him. Um, the double points that he got from it, but just the whole kind of cloud of, Oh, okay. So wait a minute. Uh, points are tied. How did they get tied? No one else led the championship all year long. The moment, the the official moment the championship had a second leader was when the checkered flag waved. The Everything else before that was JPM. It was amazing. And Dixon wasn't even in second coming into the race. That was Ray Hall. But the fact that Dixon went and won the race and all these things, it's funny, at least for me, it seems like that's the almost the forgotten part. It was more the how the hell did that happen? How did the points get tied? And even so, knowing that Dick uh, Montoya led the whole year, you'd have to assume that he did a better job throughout the year and Dixon pulled a fast one at the final race. Well, uh, on the count back, yeah, uh, the title went in favor of Dixon. So that one was just a bit of a race long i don't even remember how many laps it was but that was just really a race long drama where uh, i feel bad for i think arnish threben we were just pestering the living crap out of him the whole time where where are we at now where are the points gone here and, and who's up who's down and trying to work through the little spreadsheet that they put put out before each race of points possibilities and I think I'd scribbled over mine and circled so many things throughout the race that I might have needed to go and get a photocopy of another one of, okay, well, now Montoya's here and Dixon's there, and what does this mean? And anyways, I, yeah, that really stands out to me because when it's cut and dry, kind of like it is right now, although, again, New Garden could pull it off. Um, yeah, if it's already settled, uh whether oh, not formally, obviously, but if it's already a done deal going into the final race, meh, doesn't really jump out as uh, something that really catches my attention. So I hope it's crazy dramatic and I hope that whomever wins the championship is a deserving champion, right? Not because some idiot, uh, forgot to break blue Joseph Newgarden out of the, uh, breaking zone in turn one, uh, tore the back half of his car off, race over. Scott Dixon's a champion. We didn't even get a chance to see how this might play out or whatever other scenario that might knock Dixon out. That would be stupid. I just hope we get something real where you go, all right, whomever it is that won it, you got it. You really, truly earned it. Um, I'm brain farting if there's anything else. So I'm going to move on to the last two questions 
Kevin DeVries. Hey, pal. This is being inspired by the stylings of the one and only Mr. John Wojnar, a.k.a. John Ranjow. With the offseason approaching and a few well-earned adult beverages being in order, if the IndyCar field was a liquor store, who would be what product? Is Connor Daly a warm 40-ounce of Colt 45? Bordea a vintage Bordeaux? Uh, Renus a chilled bottle of Advocat and says cheers. Wow, okay. Drivers as alcohol. <sighs> and all I can do is piss people off with these answers, so I appreciate not like any of the drivers listen to my nonsense here, but um, if they do, yeah, I look forward to catch, catching a bunch of crap. Uh, let's see. Graham seems like a box wine guy. I know that he isn't. I know that his dad, Bob, is a fine connoisseur of wine, but I just love saying that Graham would be a box wine kind of guy because, yeah, he'd probably punch me in the head, and that'd be kind of funny. Pagano. Wouldn't it be hilarious if Pagano was like a Schlitz guy or a Corona guy or just some kind of, you know, cheap or generic stuff where you go, oh, okay. Yeah, we figure you, Mr. Wealthy guy, French guy, you'd probably be leaning towards some sort of exotic frou-frou, whatever. Uh, yeah, I would, I'm not saying he is either of those things, but I'd like to believe that he is. Uh, who else? Who else would I go to here? Santino, I mean, it's got to be Cavassier, right? Um, and maybe him speaking in a lisp, like the ladies' man. Ever tell you guys that I grew up with a lisp? Maybe not. Uh, Santino's definitely a Cavassier guy, uh, for sure. Uh, what else? We know that Mike Shank is a uh, is a Bush Light guy, so that's already pretty well established. What about hard liquor? Do you think, are there any drivers that are actual, real, like, woo, uh, as my wife likes to refer to it, brown liquor? Uh, stuff that, you know, you can get drunk on beer, of course, but I'm talking the waking up with someone else's, wearing someone else's pants kind of thing, like what happened. Um, Dixon, Dixon is known for probably more in his youth. I'd love to hear though, if it's still something as a 40 year old, but Dixon is known for, uh, waking up face down more than once, uh, maybe in someone else's pants. I think Joseph Newgarden would be a sake guy for sure. Uh, knowing his love of Japanese culture, definite sake guy for sure. I would assume it'd be warm. The, the proper way to drink it. I'd be very disappointed to learn if, uh, it would be cold. Herda, just don't see him drinking i just don't hot sauce like a lot of hot sauce taking it straight to the head power (sighs) these days i don't i can't picture will drinking because he seems drunk enough most of the time just being himself that that would not be a thing uh who else let me see if i can think of any others that would be interesting to discuss Jack Harvey on his health kick. Yeah. I mean, what would he drink? Would it be some super pure agave white clear as crystal clear tequila? Because there's some sort of vegan benefit from it, maybe? I don't know. Um, What else? Erickson and Rosenquist, I need to find out. I have a feeling that they have consumed some things that might be you might be able to put into the tank of an IndyCar and run the thing successfully. 
that's that's for sure. Something I'd love to find out. Um, I mean, we know Hinch. He's got his own beer. What he's a is it a Scotch whiskey kind of thing? Um, I'm not super versed in this stuff. Twenty twenty five twenty years ago, I'd probably be able to tell you a lot more. Uh, a lot of brand names too, but yeah, uh, you might have heard me mention. In my youth, I made sure that I taught myself up on alcohol, so I don't necessarily need any more. Uh, final question here goes to uh, Paul Trahan. How you doing, Paul? One, a topic that absolutely makes my stomach turn and makes me want to vomit in the presence of this smell. Paul says, after seeing quarterback Joe Burrow and NBA champ, uh, LeBron James light up cigars after winning championships uh, in your hashtag personal opinion, which IndyCar driver would jump on the hashtag front nose of their car and smoke a stogie. He says, hashtag me personally. I could see Graham Rahal do it as long as he has the mustache. So back to, yeah, when I smell cigars, I, I really do have to remove myself because it just makes my stomach twist into a knot and, the contents want to come out who and i'm trying to think like really want a cigar not like the oh you got a baby you want a championship and this is you know you're just kind of playing the role of oh gonna smoke a celebratory cigar who would actually want to do that and i'm looking all the way down to even the one-off drivers this year and such man I don't know if any jump out, Paul. It seems like most are too clean living. Uh, I'm thankful that just about every IndyCar driver I know is very anti-smoking, so there's that. It might be Erickson. I know he's Mr. Fitness and he cycles a thousand times a day and all those things, but there's just something that tells me somewhere in a snow-covered cabin, wherever, there will be some sort of crazy methanol whiskey uh vodka concoction and cigars going uh, i think it'd be marcus i mean we could mention a few others and you know uh, but there aren't <laughs> here's maybe just a recognition of something we know that connor with his wrestling background uh, you know is a tough little bastard right uh, most even though he's not tall most people wouldn't want to pick a fight uh he'd go low and get you on the ground and molly whop you a bit um tony canon mr fitness and all that stuff and really strong guy he we assume would be able to handle himself power we know again punchy guy uh there's just not a lot of drivers paul i'd look at and say manly man you know knocking back shots and this and that and hardcore rot gut booze and cigars and it's a little bit of a lifestyle thing and i just don't really see it uh, among any of the drivers. Now, what I want to close on here is the anti version of your question. So who would be the greatest shock to see uh, roll down to the hashtag front nose and uh, light up a cigar celebrating a championship? Who is the driver where you'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe he did that. That is just so out of character who would that be 
Uh, I mean, Colton strikes me as pretty clean living. Uh, I'm just trying to think. Germaphobes? Um, who would that be that would just... I mean, there are many where I could just go, I know they wouldn't. Like, would Sebastian? No, not a chance. Uh, would Chilton? No, I don't think so. But who would be the one that you'd be like, no way, really? I... I guess I should say Santino is one who I think might do that. He, he, there's a little bit of stereotypical macho man guy thing there. Uh, so I might've totally missed that pretty obvious one, uh, in the who would category, Paul. Um, I think it might be new garden. He, he's a very finicky guy. Very, everything's got to be just right. Super clean, super polished, uh, of all the Penske drivers, his clothes always seem to be the most perfect, Something smelly and stinky and ashy hanging off the front of his face. Just, it seems like that would be so diametrically opposed to his personality, clean cut image and all these things. Plus, I think he'd barf just like me. Uh, So I think Joseph would be the opposite. Wouldn't it be hilarious to find out that no, indeed, he's the one cigar aficionado. He's got his own humidor room in the house they're building, and he's got a $100,000 cigar uh, under lock and key and armed security 24 hours a day to safeguard it. That'd be pretty hilarious. But he just jumps out as the one where you go, oh, he's a little too all-American, perfect, angelic, plus very particular type guy that... I just I couldn't see it happening at all. But yeah, I think uh I think Santino might be the the obvious one with Marcus Erickson maybe being number 2. All right. Uh good lord. We got a couple others. Uh send them in if I didn't get to them and you wanted me to answer them, but I think for the most part we really truly did get to about 95% of all your questions this week, both in part 1 now here in part 2. I have Rocky sleeping to my left, Rosie to the right. It is, what, 7.06 p.m. I think the presidential debate is over. Thank goodness I do not want to watch any of that because, I, I, yeah, I don't want to slip into depression. Um, thank you for sending your stuff in. Thank you for taking this little very informal, very conversational journey with me each week. I do appreciate, truly, truly do appreciate all of you who come along and do this. Uh, I forget what I was doing. I might have been brushing my teeth yesterday and just had the little thought flash through my head because I get complaints, whatever, you know, hey, you do this too much, do this, do that, don't, all kinds of things that I should do differently, but I won't. And I just had this quick little flash thought of, you know, I do appreciate the fact that we have a fun group here. There's been an offshoot that's been created that have named themselves the Prue Day, uh, modeled after my favorite WWE tag team, the New Day, kind of super fans, which is uh, insane. My wife loves you guys, by the way. She thinks it's the most hilarious thing ever. I appreciate you all. And I know I say thank you usually at the start of every episode and probably towards the end as well, but Let's take a second here to tell you that I really do appreciate the time you take to send in questions. Many of you are here every week sending in questions. I know that there's a much larger group who do not, who just listen, and that's also awesome. 
I probably don't know most of your names because we don't have these by name interactions each week with your questions, but I have seen of late, there have been quite a few new names come through. So I really do appreciate that. And there are more structured shows you can go listen to. That's the, that's the thing that popped into my head while brushing Matufuses that, yeah, you can, there are other shows. You maybe listen to those too, and they are shorter and punchier. They're really not conversational. It's just more black and white question, answer, question, answer, question, answer. And it's not me. Never has been, never will be. And I appreciate the fact that y'all, I guess the craziest ones of y'all, uh, come here and consume. So it's pretty cool. And I do enjoy this. It takes a considerable amount of time each week. Now that we have enough questions coming through to warrant splitting these out into two shows. So it's a couple hours per week that we're talking to each other, going through the Q and a, I really do enjoy it. I would not do it if I did not enjoy it. So, yeah, just want to say thank you here. And what? I'm going to bid farewell. I think it's dinner time. And uh, we got a championship to settle and a leader circle to figure out. And what? A rookie of the year to crown? He's got to be Dutch and name Renus BK, by the way. And what else? I don't know. Will drivers be hired or fired before? we even get to the race the way things have been going it could be so i'm gonna look forward to talking about it next week whatever the hell happens at saint pete thank you all for listening thanks for giving this little endeavor of mine uh, a lot of love and support and let's go and get our minds stuck into saint petersburg